conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you. In this podcast, we've got a really fantastic guest today. Um, Andrea and I are speaking with James Toomey, the CEO of Mission Australia. Uh, And Mission Australia, as I'm sure you will know, are one of the largest charities in Australia. They're a national Christian charity helping Australians in need move towards independence. And this year, they helped something like 160,000 people addressing things like homelessness, assisting disadvantaged families and children, addressing mental health, fighting substance dependencies and more. I met James at a Harvard leadership panel recently and I was really impressed with the accessible way he talked about leadership and his humility given the significant role and organisation he leads. James was appointed as CEO of Mission Australia in November of 2017 and he'd spent the prior seven years as national manager uh, and after that the executive of operations and fundraising. Prior to Mission Australia, James was the Operations Director of Skillforce and Assistant Director of Foster Care Associates in the UK. Alongside his role as CEO, James is a director of a number of Mission Australia's entities, including their early learning and housing. He's a master's degree in social work, an MBA, and he's a graduate of the AICD. James, wonderful to have you join us today. Thank you. Um, What I'd love to do is start with a really a bit of a context question. What is it that you see as complex in the current context that we're operating in? And perhaps then, you know, what are the leadership opportunities and challenges as a consequence? Mm, no, thanks very much. I um, I mean, I certainly see the context that we're operating in is, is, is actually quite dynamic and there's quite a lot of change around us coming at us um, from initiatives such as the NDIS, which is obviously very significant change for um, either directly or indirectly for a number of different organisations in the sector, mm. but also uh, you know changes in 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 giving behaviour. We're an organisation which receives donations, as many organisations do, and changes in in, in giving behaviour in terms of um, people's connection with philanthropy and what they want what they want to see with their mm. philanthropy, mm. as opposed to perhaps a picture a few years ago where people or even corporates were content to give on the basis that, well, we know that the organisations are the experts and how they're going to commit these funds and, and, and so we'll allow them to do that. So a whole area around reporting and validation of activity, which doesn't just apply to our government uh, contracted work, which is obviously very significant, but also to our other relationships as well. Mm. And there's a burden that comes with reporting. Um, and there's an assumption that organisations such as ours can self-generate significant amounts of complex information about what we do and how we do it and where we're doing it and how effective it is. That's not necessarily the case because it's an area that we haven't been required to invest in, particularly in the past, and therefore is probably an under under-baked capability for an organiza- for organisations in the sector. And that's interesting to hear from Mission because uh, that's if it's so so for you for the smaller and the organisations as you go down the value chain, it would. Absolutely. No, no, no. Absolutely right. And and we you know we we are able to, um, and have over the last few years invested quite heavily in our ability to actually measure and monitor what we do and to, and to demonstrate impact. And measurable impact is a very very important part of us mm-hmm. validating our own activity. Um, one of the areas of complexity that arises is that you'll have different governments or different departments within the same government who res- who expect different types of of measure um, and uh, you know frequently what you want to be able to do is say well here's our standard set of of how we of measures that we how we measure ourselves which one would you like and the answer is none of those um, we'd like some bespoke ones which are specific to our department or our contract for this period of time and that contract might be a one-year piece of work or it might be a three-year piece of work or in the case of some of our um, you know housing opportunities and maybe you know multiple multiple years um, so the 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 energy that then gets absorbed, the resources in an organisation then get absorbed on reporting on the activity that we're being funded to do, mm. if you're not very careful, becomes disproportionate to the to the value of the work that you're actually doing. And I don't mean the value to the organisation, I mean value to community. Mm. Um, this drives all sorts of behaviours, I think, in the sector where um, it's possible for organisations maybe to concentrate on activities which are easy to validate. Um 
but they might not be adding the most value in community and making the most difference. Perhaps the harder to validate community programs are the ones which actually are shifting the dial on the problems that we exist we exist to address. That that has you know in, in there are, there are ways there you can start to distort choices in an organisation about the way in which it chooses to commit its, its resources because you know, you know really being slavishly responding to the funder requirement as opposed to actually. Um, the focus on we're doing this because we want to shift the dial. There's a corollary there to innovation, right? Yep. And uh, the the measurability of innovation. So right. we may choose to innovate as an organisation and see something which we think is actually value-adding or innovative, mm-hmm. but it may not be rewarded or recognised within the context of a contract. Yes. And slower um, to be able to track, you know, the risk, the higher risk, innovative end of the spectrum there's it takes time until you can generate the stable or even know what it is you would want to measure in order to report back in some way that has the transparency and the solidity that and is that part of yes that's right I'm curious about the link to the to the culture piece is that part of um well I think in terms of linking it to culture you you know organizations and, and Mission Australia is striving to do this now and we're doing this now is you know, striving to be more agile yes and to be able to innovate within the constraints of a program mm. um rather than uh, just saying look we, we can't innovate because we're not we're not funded to innovate actually let's work out how we can innovate within the constraints of what we we're called to do um uh, that for an organization um you know it, once you start to unlock a principle of innovation and where that sits in your organization, it, it, it talks then to what, what, what your capabilities are and how what kind of capabilities you have. If you've been an organization which has uh, not been at the leading edge of innovation or has not required, to, uh, required itself to innovate or hasn't been particularly agile over any period of time in excess of probably five years, what you will have done is in, in, in most people's turnover is something between you know, 10 to 15 percent, I guess, in the sector. Over that period of time, you, you, what you've got is a, at least half a staff group of people who have been brought in on the basis of this is an organisation that doesn't innovate. Mm-hmm. You don't want to change gear and say no, we want to innovate. Your first problem is that the people in the organisation thinking, well, I didn't come into this organisation to innovate. I came into this organisation for steady state. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of uh, organisational capabilities do you have in order to? Uh, you know, follow the desire to to innovate more, it, it, which you know the sense that there is a um, a latent desire in people to innovate. Um, it isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily bear out in in my experience. People experience it as change, and you know, mm-hmm. change can be very difficult for people to to cope with for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And certainly, people who feel well, no, we've been doing this. This is the solution to this problem in this in this community or this this segment. This is what government expects us to do. We're very, very good at doing what government expects us to do, and we'll continue doing what government expects us to do and doing better than their benchmarks. Um, which doesn't necessarily, in in and of itself, foster innovation yeah. and uh, uh, and a um, a mindset that says, well, no, we need to try something different here because we're not shifting the dial. Yes, mm. and that really, I mean, that really resonates. <coughs> For me, when I think of a lot of work that we do and, you know, we do a lot of personality profiling both in the, at the recruitment end and then to help with team development and cohesion and understanding what we've got and um, and we can screen for and see the profile where people have a more of a tendency or more of an orientation towards agility or, uh, you know, complexity and that's more their preferential style versus the more structured um, build on past steady. success, steady state. So that that fits that that you know we're then recruiting and attracting and building and rewarding a particular style of um, uh, processing information, just certain uh, comfort with change, and then being somewhat frustrated or confused about why we don't have this sort of bubbling up from within. Is, is that? Yes, I think that, and 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 um, the role then of you know the, the huge significance of of uh, organisational structure and how you then um, mm-hmm. foster innovation. So, uh, you know, organisation of, of our size, we've got about two and a half thousand employees. Uh, you know, a significant number of people will be 
below the age of 30. Um, how are we able to respond to um, a younger, a, 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 you know, a younger cohort of the workforce who who will want to see things done in a different way and have a desire to perhaps tackle social problems in a different way or um, in a more uh, digitally mediated way because that's very much the, the environment in which we live and operate and, and those the kind of early adoption of new technologies tends to sit within that cohort, that age cohort of the population, mm. when in this organisation, as in many others, uh, you know, managers and senior leaders are, uh, you know, a generation or half a generation older. That brings great experience, but it also can, uh, that, that experience can be, um, it can manifest itself as, as, as a rigidity in terms of thinking style, in terms of, well, no, this is, this is how we need to do it. So, mm. Um, any organisation which has to grapple with the the, the sense of and any and and, and organisations have to it's not this is not a new phenomenon you know new younger staff coming in with new ideas um, you know pre existing older staff with you know, either organisational or career maturity going no we've already done it this way this is where it should we've be done tried it that's and didn't you know that's it's not stuff. a new it's not a novel mm. challenge but I think then the uh, uh, the way in which we uh, embrace uh, you know, yeah, younger cohorts of staff who, the, and I think the difference from the challenge now compared to in the past is, that, and I hear this from other organisations too, is employees um, coming in and saying, well, no, no, my aspiration isn't to be, um, I don't want to be, uh, you know, a, a general manager or mm. the CEO or, you know, the, or here or anywhere else. That's not what I want to, that's not, that's not, I haven't got a career path that looks like that. I just want to make a difference where I'm working. Um, whereas the traditional you know, thinking was, well, people come into the organisation at, at the bottom, as it were, in inverted mm-hmm. commas, and they work their way up, and mm-hmm. therefore your motivation is to, to to you know to engage and learn new things in order to be more uh, employable it's and more significant of a linear in the organisation. Kind of. But actually, what you've got, and I hear this mm-hmm. not just in this sector, mm-hmm. but also in the um, you know in the commercial sector too, is people saying, no, we actually we think our organisation ought to be making a difference. Um, and, I, and I'm less concerned about my personal, uh, you know, um, accumulation of wealth or significance than I am in what the organisation can achieve. So how can we grapple with and embrace that energy and thinking in a way which actually, uh, you know, goes to work on the problems that we're trying to solve as an organisation, as opposed to it being a, uh, you know, effectively a schism of thinking between, yes. uh, you know, different parts of the organisation. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I really, what is fresh to me in what you're saying is the systemic role that funding plays in setting the sector up for a more uh, traditional way of operating or, a, you know, a more uh, a, a simple complicated as opposed to complex mm-hmm. way of working if that makes yeah i mean sense. Fu- absolutely funding i mean in, in, in any in, you know you're all any organization either intentionally or subconsciously starts to look like its customer mm. and, and and those effective relationships are very very important because if you're not engaging with your customer mm. And being able to provide a some kind of you know sort of interlock, if you like, between your own operations and what your customers' preferences are, then they won't be your customer. They'll go somewhere else where they are able to find that interlock and preference. Mm. Happens in retail, you know. Happens you know in, in all areas where we're thinking about customers and consumers. The difference, I think, in um, the uh, what you might describe as the um, social purpose organisations or sector is that the customer and the consumer aren't necessarily the same thing. So the customer, i.e. the person who's paying you for your service, is government, but the consumer is someone who is actually not paying for the service and and could become disenfranchised in that process. It's the disruption of NDIS. Absolutely right. right. Yeah. So a voucher system or you know, a user-directed user, a user mm. directed fund system like that obviously is very is potentially mm-hmm. very disruptive. What that means is, that, and, and you're absolutely right about that, that potential for disruption, because it means that organisations which have for many years worked on uh, I'm going to maintain my government relationships uh, and I'm going to make sure that I'm delivering to the government's expectations of the program and that's going to that's what's going to make it possible for me to keep winning the piece of work or to win new work mm. um, and uh, I will in good conscience do the best I can for the people who are consuming my services mm. 
is a very different thing when the people who are consuming your services are saying, well, actually, the service that we got from you wasn't very good, but we had to, we had to have it because it wasn't any choice. Mm. But now we have a choice and we're going to choose not to come with you. We're going to choose to go even with a un- completely unknown quantity, but someone who has a better proposition. Mm. Sounds like they might, sounds like they might be better at it than you, so we'll take our funding there and direct it there. Mm. So it's hugely disruptive mm. to the way in which organisations are configured mm. and to the kind of leaders that you then seek to employ in your organizations because you need to have um, you know particularly the executive level and and other senior leaders in an organization who are alive to and alert to the threat of that to an organization's configuration and and how an organization is going to choose to respond to that and in a in a for purpose organization i think the the other pieces um or a social purpose organization i i I grapple with the language. Yes. For purpose tends we've, we've to... We've settled on social purpose. Well, I think so, social purpose, I think, is a, is, a, is a good way of describing it. For purpose implies that other organisations are anti-purpose, Correct. which clearly is not the case. That's right. Um, so we all, just, in we all a, agree we don't like non-profit. <laughs> that's right. So social purpose organisations, um, in, that, in that transition, need to be very careful that, the, that we don't lose sight of our purpose. Mm. And our purpose isn't just to be or to exist mm. or to sit on a problem and say that's good. We're we're in this we're in this community and we're delivering this program. And we have been for the last twenty or thirty years. Mm. Okay, we're, have you shifted the dial? No, no, it's a big problem. Poverty is a problem here, or whatever. Mm. well, but you've been there for thirty years and looks the same or it worse. Looks the same. So, <laughs> kind of, are, mm. what's happening? Um, and the dependency on funding, the interdependency, the mm. mutual dependency that then goes between funders and, and organisations. Um. I think is a distraction from purpose. Mm. Well, holds the system in a kind of stasis, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I, what I'm hearing from you, I think, to test is that the challenge then for a CEO in the social purpose space is understanding the way in which the funding market is supporting a, a certain kind of approach uh, which doesn't, support facilitate necessarily innovation and agility and so there's this the leadership part of that if you like is to try and kind of get above that system understand how it's driving or constraining your innovation or requiring more of it than you actually have the capacity to you know instantly deliver or sort of juggle those I mean I imagine in an organization of the size of mission some components of the funding are sort of constraining innovation and other parts are uh, generating at rapid rates is is, is that yes right? I, I guess the um, I mean in in general terms the the freedom to allocate funding uh, you know the, the the money we raise from fundraising is money that we apply to services which may or may not may, may in other ways be not funded not, not funded by government but we see there's a need mm. and we apply them in those spaces and we do get more opportunity therefore to be innovative or to um, start up a relatively low-cost demonstration project with a little bit of validation alongside it to actually see if it's working or how it, how it could be improved um, and to test those hypotheses. Uh, the the, the, the call-out for me always in relation to innovation in, in, in the sector, particularly in, in the, um, the social purpose sector, where a you know the recipient of a service is a human and experimenting on humans for you know for the purposes of innovation is is fraught with difficulty i mean mm-hmm. if you um if you design and deliver a program which actually leaves people worse off than they would have been if you left them alone it's it's a pretty bad mm-hmm. and you might have demonstrated something but actually you've demonstrated something at the cost of a, a human experience which is which is a real challenge and I, and so some of the language that we you know, get, um, um, hear from colleagues outside the sector who will talk about, well, it's important to fail and fail fast. Well, that, that's true, but not, not of the failure is at the cost of a community. Yes. Um, so the, the, it, it's the appetite for failure and risk within the organisation in a way that insulates the recipient of a service from their, your, 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 you know, the, the failed hypothesis, mm-hmm. your theory about a new programme which actually turned out not to work. Yes. And that, that's that's something which is which is challenging around, and, and um, the low and threshold innovation. too. If I think of some of our clients, say who are going through the NDIS, the the 
fail, fail fast, there's a lot of uh, eyes watching. <laughs> and so, you know, if there's something that goes wrong, it can bring your you down on your knees pretty quickly, you know? Yes, that's true. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, accounts of, of um, you know failure or shortcomings in a in a system, particularly something as as, as you say as, as you know, in the goldfish bowl, if you like, of, mm-hmm. of NDIS, um, are um, m- you know much more clickable or on or readable or <coughs> you know, headline grabbing mm-hmm. than some of the extraordinary success stories of people's empowerment, mm-hmm. where people who have been four years trapped in a dependency mode with you know one provider providing one thing up the road from them and no other choice to do anything else are now um you know living in in the, in the most independent way that they can within their limitations but uh, with packages support and care which are allowing them to engage fully in community in ways that they hadn't done in the past but it's not very measurable it's a sort of qualitative measure more complex story rather than a, and a more complex story you know quantitatively it's easy to demonstrate that you know, somebody whose package of care, you know, should used to cost or used to be funded for them or used to be provided um, uh, without, you know, without recognition of cost to the individual is now regarded as too expensive by the NDIS. Therefore, we can't, therefore it can't be done is a much more interesting story than somebody's quality of life measurably, qualitatively improved. They are more engaged with their community, less isolated, uh, using public transport, perhaps with a companion, perhaps not, um, you know, yeah, having their hair cut, living more autonomously. All of those things are incredible at a personal level, an individual level, but they're not particularly compelling stories. They're, I mean, they are to that person, <laughs> which kind of makes the point. It's the, risk of, you know, the risk of failure is that actually, you know, it's, it's easy to, um, to fail and impact negatively the life of a person um, and uh, you know, and that that not to be not not to be um, not to resonate particularly if your intentions were good. Mm. Um, and actually, on that per- that person had a profound experience, mm. and if it's a profoundly bad experience, then it's a failure. Well, go on. Um, so I, I was wondering around your team. These um, the, the the sort of this difference that you describe in terms of on the one hand being able to to lead in a way where it, it fulfills to the the reporting and you know the existing structures but then also be open to build more of a culture of being agile and, and you know innovative and then with the a cohort or a, a sort of a as you say under 30 type of um, employees that are very much sort of focus in a different way. How do you look at building a team that can handle all of that, those, you know, those aspects? Um, I mean, I, I think that there is a, we, we are, as an organisation, we have we have a benefit of scale, which is not available to every organisation. And I absolutely recognise mm-hmm. that's, um, a, you know, an, an asset which is easy to overlook. Um, but we also have, and we have some complexity which drives scale, and and conversely we have scale which drives complexity. So, mm. you broaden your um, scope of activities within your within the frame of your purpose. And for example, um, you know we have a, a you know Mission Australia is a you know is an entity itself. We have Mission Australia Housing, which is a, a, a subordinate entity, which is a community housing provider. Uh, in order to provide community housing in Victoria, we have to have another organisation called Mission Australia Housing Victoria because yeah. the Victorian registrar requires us to have a different yeah. housing entity than than uh, you know the other registrars. So there's a bit of complexity. So immediately you've got you know governance, you know, secretariat, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know and, and meeting those governance requirements just before you kind of you've even, you even you haven't, you haven't turned the first page on your day's work <laughs> and, and already you've got to you've got to build that in because you're responding to different regulatory environments and, and different ways in which that's perceived. Um, and I think about we and we've just um, uh, transferred our early learning business to Good Start that took effect a few days ago. And we had an early learning board. I was chair of the early learning board. We had executives who were on the early learning board, and that's a requirement to have that board. All of those directors had to have um, 
uh, working with children clearance in every stage in which we operated, as did the main board of Mission Australia, in order to be on the main board of a, of a board which had a supported entity which delivered early learning. Now, that's very important from the point of view of child safety, and I absolutely understand that. So I'm not saying that's mm. not, a, not an important thing to have. It's just an illustration of mm. the added bureaucracy mm. that can come with attempts to broaden scale uh, and broaden scope of, of activities. Mm. What that then, so, so that's where, you know, scale drives complexity and then you've got some, you know, and then and you have complexity which responds to scale and those two things that you know, are illustrated probably by those examples. What that means at an executive level is that, um, uh, you, you know, the pool to draw from for a CFO for an organisation like Mission Australia or a, a you know, company secretary in a legal counsel for an organisation like Mission Australia or a head of people and culture, as we have you know, an organisation like Mission Australia, um, the, 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 the draw from pool starts to look a bit constrained because I don't pay people a lot of money to be executives of an organisation which turns over nearly $300 million a year and has 2,500 employees and uh, you know, offices all over the, over the country, 400 different services, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I'm trying to I'm trying to persuade people to come and either to stay in the sector and move across into another organisation where they're not going to earn a great deal more than they were earning in another organisation, or to come out of the commercial sector because I need that kind of commercial capability, particularly around you know governance and corporate finance, complex corporate finance instruments, and saying um, and yes, can you come here for you know half the money that you were earning somewhere else uh, you know so there's a real challenge there and I have an extraordinary executive team of people who are sufficiently motivated by the nature of the work that we do to actually yeah. to absolutely do that and say okay we'll take we'll take a pay cut effectively to come and work for Mission Australia and I'm also blessed to have a board we don't pay the board mm. so um, you know, it saves the theoretically saves the organisation a significant amount of money mm. we're also able to draw down on you know pro-owned relationships with uh, law firms and you know perhaps you know uh, big four um, uh, corporate services firms who may give us some pro bono or low bono support, but all requires you have to go and find that and you have to develop those relationships and and so those things are um, possibly a byproduct of our scale and visibility, mm. um, which is fantastic for us. But there are smaller organisations than us who are doing every bit as important work at a community level, mm. who do not have the opportunity to draw on those kind of resources and relationships. And that tends to um, indicate that what will happen is, you know, consolidation of organisations will happen. Mm. Because in order for organisations to survive and to draw down government funds or, 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 or other, you know, corporate philanthropy and report on it, they'll need to have a significant scale and complexity in order to do that. Um, which is one thing for the survival of an organisation, but actually we're here because of the purpose that we're trying to deliver. So what does that mean for the community recipient on the ground when you start to lose your local community connection and engagement because, you know, because organisations had to surrender itself to the, to the market effectively and say, well, we're going to have to merge or we're going to have to either go out of, either, either we're going to have to cease operating or we're going to have to merge or reverse ourselves into a larger organisation. And from a community perspective, lose some of that local connection and agility, which is what you value us for. Mm-hmm. So the 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 pull to um, to be more secure and be more sophisticated and be more you know, corporately adept, effectively, mm-hmm. um, is is very strong. Right. And, but the pull from community to say but don't lose touch with us and the, mm. and the programs that you're supposed to be providing and, and really frankly we don't care if you have a company secretary or not what we want is the is the center to be open you know monday to friday 7 7 a.m till 7 p.m because that's when we'd like to use it you know mm. and so you know we're not fussed about your corporate structure we want the service and you know the important thing for us is the service on the ground mm. um, those things can pull against each other when you talk about that, James, um, what comes to mind for me is the degree of cross-working 
up and down and across an organisation that's got that kind of size and scale and complexity and how to hold the polarity of the governance with the agility Mm. at the front end and then all this governance and, you know, sort of structure and system that has to mediate that, you know, organisations are are often sort of setting themselves up as, you know, these are our values. As an organisation, we stand by that. What does that spectrum sound like at Mission? And are you trying to create something that everybody says, okay, we are both, you know, professional and systemic and and governance and risk aware and we're also agile and innovative, at, you know, when we're at mm. the And how do we, how does that look mm. trying to hold that uh, extreme tension? tension? Yeah. Um, it, complex. I mean, it, it, the reality. So, uh, I mean, thinking and taking the question, particularly in relation to risk and risk appetite, is um, uh, you know the past few years has been working with particularly closely with the board and with the board organ risk committee about um, you know what risk looks like in an organisation like Western Australia delivering I don't the think services. I mean, I'm working provide. with very small organisations, and we're having the same conversation. Yeah. The pool. Is the yeah. same, you know. Mm. We've got our board. They're professional. A lot of them are amazing people. They're corporate. They get risk, and we're also trying. But you know, maybe we emerge from being a frontline organisation, or maybe you know, a lot of founder stuff. And they're really, you know, and it's a real struggle to keep both alive. Yes. Inside people, inside teams, you know. And well, and I think the important thing. I mean, absolutely right. And the the the, the tension is. Um, I mean, in its worst manifestations, I suppose, you know, to, to seek to mitigate or eliminate every every possible risk in an organisation. Yes. Mm. When at the same time, um, we are an organisation which delivers, you know, local area coordination through the NDIS and various other services where we on the ground talk frequently about the dignity of risk at a personal level. Mm. And actually there are some risks that, people need to be able to take in their lives in order to have a qualitatively better life. You know, it's, it's, it, is, it, would be, you know, it is possible, and we see some of this in the Aged Care Royal Commission, to, um, you know, to sedate people in nursing homes so, they don't break so that they don't break something or themselves or hit an employee or et cetera, et cetera. Yes. That eliminates the risk to the organisation. Mm. But what about the qualitative experience for the person who's who's sedated and, and maybe over-sedated and unnecessarily sedated. Mm. And that's an, it's an example of where the, uh, you know, a misunderstanding of the, of the nature and the purpose of the people that an organisation is working with mm. comes to play and then it looks like, well, it looks very simple in terms of risk management, that's what it needs to be around here. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, insurable and uninsurable risks. You know, then, but even, and then you get because the next stage you go well, well we, we'd like to do these things but, but actually we, we can't we, we can't indemnify the organisation against it mm-hmm. so there's actually you know, effectively sovereign risk to the organisation mm-hmm. um, and then work practices which uh, mean would could you know potentially mean if you if you for example said um, as an organisation we weren't going to have any individual worker working individually with a um, with a client in a client interaction mm. and so no loan working all, everyone's got to be a company there's always got to be two people etc 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 well that would mean that actually we would have to just basically pull out of a huge amount of regional remote Australia where we add you know, we do incredible work mm. and so to, so what's the benefit to the community so you've you made the organization safer but is it but what about the purpose of the organisation? So, in a, you know, in a commercial setting, it's it, you know, it might be it, there may be a very straightforward commercial payoff, which is well, mm. we can't afford to put two people in there, mm. um, so we're just not going to deliver that service anymore. Um, but in an organisation, which but it's our purpose is to deliver is, is we're trying to meet human need mm. in the most cost-effective way possible. And um, it's you know, the, the the board is making it you know the, the board is taking a view of risk which is going to make this prohibitively mm. expensive. We can't afford to do that within the constraints of, of, of a program, or we're going to have to subsidise a government program because we're not funded to you know to to, to provide um, that level of workforce. Mm. So you, you so the risk is then you as an organisation, but we'll just pull out of the difficult stuff. Mm. So you pull out of all the hard stuff, and you stick and you and you stick with the easy stuff. 
lots of people are doing the easy stuff. So you end up with communities which are overserved mm. by organizations who are very, very good at doing the, I mean, inverted commas easy. Yeah. None of the work is particularly easy, but it's all <laughs> relatively, you yeah. know, the relatively it's easy work. Lower risk. Lower risk work. And, and then whole communities which are underserved because everyone goes, oh, it's too risky to go out there because, you know, the, we can't ensure uh, the board's risk appetite isn't, isn't, is, can't take that into account. And so we just won't be able to service those areas. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, real, that's a real problem. And so, but fortunately, you know, the board, our, our, you know, an excellent board who are very tuned into the reality that, you know, in a human services organization, we're dealing with human beings every day. Um, and there's this thing called free will that people exercise. And, you know, sometimes things happen. And you can't help that yeah. to recruit people and the board and everybody yeah. to our values. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's right. Yeah, because it sounds when you talk like that, that the purpose and having this strong purpose as an organisation and both for your executive team or for the team of people who sign up for, for a job like this, that's what brings manage to hold that tension together between the, you know, managing the risk and the regulatory piece and as well as, but we need to keep shifting the dial and we need to keep making a difference on community level because that is our purpose. But mm. We can't fulfill our purpose if we don't manage the risks and, you know, the, the government. Um, so it's actually that that is the key that's holding that tension probably for your team. And I'm wondering also for these, you know, kind of the younger employees because it sounded like they're very purpose-driven as opposed to ego-driven. Well, it's a, a generalisation. Yes, I, I, I think the... Um just thinking yeah. about culture again in that bigger group, you know. Yeah, I mean, the the um, as as a broad um, characterization, I would say that uh, people at Mission Australia are just vocationally motivated. Yes, mm. you have to, be. and mm. they draw on uh, you know an intrinsic reward mm -hmm. of of personal validation of the work that we do mm -hmm. and the satisfaction that they gain from actually working with um in some cases some you know very very difficult or or borderline intractable mm -hmm. problems or people who have you know in, intractable challenges in their lives mm -hmm. and achieving success and the um, and and the, the, one, of the, one of the challenges there, particularly in relation to risk, is that you, as an organisation, um, you can start to lose sight of the really high quality work if you, if, you, if you create an environment where you don't want to hear about it because actually it's people operating outside the bounds of what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I, to, so this is an anecdote, but it's an example I use sometimes where... Uh, you know, a member of staff in a um, uh, in a supported housing team in regional Australia um, has been, you know, working all day. Um, at, about, at the end of a very, very long week, it's Friday. It gets to five thirty on a Friday. The office door happens to still be open because they haven't got around to going home yet. Someone presents and says, "I'm a victim of um, domestic violence, and I need somewhere to stay. Mm. I'm fleeing domestic violence." Employee goes, okay, right. Well, I, I ought to um, now. I need to sort this out. But it's out of hours. And I haven't got anyone to speak to. I, but, I, but, I, but it's okay. I know that. I know the deal. We, we can find some temporary accommodation for this person. So they bring around, find some temporary. And it's in a motel, and the motel is 120 kilometers away, and it's raining. And they go out to the car, the pool car, and they find that all the pool cars of you know people are garaging them at home over the weekend, and there are no pool cars available. Okay, well, I better take my own car. Mm. So. Um, puts a person in their own car, takes them to the refuge or takes them to the motel, um, gets them established, perhaps in that process, um, goes, well, I, I didn't have a, you know, the, the, the motel isn't, we're not, they're not set up as a biller on our system because we haven't used them before, so I'd better pay them on my own. I'll pay, I'll pay for this on my own mm. credit card, don't I'll be able to reclaim it from the organisation. Hops in the car, is driving back, at, but it's now whatever it is, nine o'clock at night in the rain, and uh, you know, skids off the road and, and hits a tree in their own car. They shouldn't have been driving the car. Yeah. 
They shouldn't be using their own car to pay those sorts of expenses. Mm. They shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't have been potentially unaccompanied in that vehicle. Mm. They shouldn't, they shouldn't, they mm. shouldn't. All of those things they theoretically shouldn't have done. Mm. But would I actually want to create an organization where you say, don't do those things? Mm. Because the organization, if you, if you do the don't under any circumstances do those things, mm. means that the person standing, still standing on the doorstep at nine o'clock at night with nowhere to go. And, and, and so mm. if, you, if you over-control what all you do is you you just kid yourself that it's not happening because actually it's still happening mm. but you're not creating an environment where it's possible for people to be safe as safe as they can be in those circumstances so what you would want to be you know, then you then you then wrap yourself around that situation and that person and you you know and, you know, perhaps talking to the insurance company and saying no they were working on a legitimate organizational business they were supposed to be driving the car mm. Uh, maybe we need, you know, we'll talk about who pays the excess. Uh, are they injured? Who, you know, are they, were they were employee? Yes, they were an employee at the time. Um, are we going to um, accept the the injury claim? Yes, we are because they were working for Mission Australia. Yes, they're okay. They were driving a car they shouldn't have been driving, and they were. It was late at night, but it's too easy in those situations. Just cut the person off and say, no, 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 they were. They shouldn't have been doing any of those things. We're going to disavow them. But ultimately, they were doing something because of their vocational commitment to the work and their commitment mm. to the individual to deliver a service that means we have a responsibility to look after that person mm. and uh, if you don't create an environment an organization where doing that is 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 possible and safe then um, in my experience all that happens is that it continues to happen but you just kid yourself it's not you just mm. you just think well i can see my i can see the scope of my organization it looks like this and there's a shadow organization mm. which is doing extraordinary work, but which you're you're yes. you're kind of willfully and some willfully and some of it is and some of it won't be. In my in my observation that some of the organisations, I think we see what they're really struggling with is that shadow and that some of the people some people are doing things which the organisation is comfortable with, and mm. some people are doing things which they're not. Yeah, and and mm. and so the the you know, dotted line, as you say, around the edge of the organisation, trying to hold a certain level of professionalism becomes for the executive in my observation sometimes really, really tricky and kind of exhausting. Um, And I'm curious about that because what that brings to mind for me is the level of the kinds of conversations you need to be able to have inside an organisation to create the capacity to work with the shadow, to work with the dotted line, to work with that, as you say, the blurry edges of we want to encourage autonomy and individual decision-making and we want to trust people that they're operating in good values, but we're going to have to have some pretty robust discussions as we navigate that and so we need that. Is, is that does that ring true for you, that sort of capability around being able to have, I guess, robust conversations? Well, I think the um, – uh, and yes, yes, it does. And part of the – you know, there are, there are various sort of frameworks, I guess, which help you in that. You, I mean, there's obviously organisations have a policy framework and, you know, all sorts of guidance about work that we should be doing and the way in which we do things. But the way in which policy – even the way in which policies are written is, is very important because mm. you, can, you can write a legally compliant policy and say – I've got a code of conduct, and you breached it, and some reason goes, well, but I don't, I don't didn't breach the intention. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't. Uh, a, I, well, I didn't know about the code of conduct, or mm. you can demonstrate that I knew about the code of conduct when I came into the organisation. Yes, I signed a piece of paper when I was signing all of those other things, including my bank account details. And else. <laughs> yes, I signed it. Uh, did I read it? No. Did I internalise and actually think about it? Did, did, was there a guide that went along the code of conduct that said this is what that looks like? This is what this actually looks like in practice, for mm. example. You know, value statements in the organisation. We've got values in the organisation which are very important. We put with those values, so that there is a, a you know the, the interpretation of a, of a of a value, and most of them are you know most of them are adjectives. So you know, quite interpretable is is, a, is then a statement of this is what this looks like. Mm. So people are then able to go well if I'm if I'm operating within that framework, then I'm operating within the intent of the organisation. Now it may be that that you know inadvertently people step outside the lines and and, and are um, uh, you know, operating outside the, the you know the, the the kind of legal scope, if you like, of an organisation. Mm-hmm. But even then, I think we've got to be able to say, uh, from an organisation perspective, but did we create the conditions that made that possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it is it should we be demonising an employee or saying actually we created the conditions that made that possible? We 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 you know mm-hmm. that 
that was because of the way that, that made we things clear enough and made things and, clear enough. Yeah. Was it absolutely clear that that shouldn't have been happening? Was it in the in the exact in the anecdote that I gave? Mm. Was was it absolutely clear that you know only pool cars are to be used in that service mm. under any circumstance? And actually, if you can't get access to a pool car, you need to bring this number and then you'll be able to do this or go in a taxi because there's a local taxi firm who you know and, and where you know we've got a standing arrangement with them. That's mm. the that's the. Fallback. That's the fallback, mm. not, oh, well, I have to take my own car. Was it absolutely clear? Did we really make that clear? Mm. Um, and I think it's very, it, it, the tendency is to immediately go to the, well, the person's at fault and we can demonstrate why they're at fault and actually not, not actually do what we do with the people that we work with in the community, which is to say, well, what did the system what did the system create that made it possible for someone to behave like that? And, and there's an interface for me there with the point you made earlier about getting good, getting and keeping good people in the sector because part of what I think I've certainly seen in the last just couple of months, if I think about some of the projects we've done in the last few months, there are uh, kind of some of the stars that get attracted to the sector, the people that are you know, hugely passionate or become the people that, you know, in particular service areas are, you know, doing a lot and have their shoulder to the wheel are often operating slightly outside the bounds. And the inability to have the tough conversation say, you know, actually we need the line to be a bit this way or, you know, that, that wasn't okay to say it like that or, you know, um, things people pass by that some of those more difficult behavioural pieces because th- those people have been there a long time or they're real, they're people that, you know, the organisations come to become really reliant on. Sometimes those people are in the executive team, it's like, well, we don't really need to model that behaviour. We're allowed to do it slightly differently or that person seems to be able to get away with things that other people can't and trying to hold that tension between keeping good people and not and not constraining and creating freedom but also creating a certain level of consistency you know and people will often say people commercial people will say to me this was in a commercial environment they wouldn't put up with that you know they would do this this and this you know and and struggling with well but you you know we don't do that in this sector i think well i think there are a couple of things that feed into that one uh, i mean the the challenges of um uh you know underperformance or or uh, you know, a sort of degradation in performance over time occur in in, in, in any organisation in any sector. It's not unique to the to mm. the to this sector. The differences in, um, in fact, I characterise you know sort of you know if, uh, in, on scale. So if we looked at other organisations of a scale of Mission Australia, perhaps in the in the in the, um, in the commercial sector and perhaps in government, is that. Um, and I know this from, from experience, and I've kind of seen this. So it's not just you know sort of anecdotal mm. stuff, but you know, um, in many government, uh, there seems to be an opportunity to find another role for someone somewhere else. So that's you know you might have a difficult conversation, but ultimately it's not existentially challenging for that person because I can you know mm. I'm going to shunt you off into someone else's department, <laughs> and actually we'll still pay you, and you'll still get your pension and other things. And so that's that piece. Mm. In uh, in some commercial settings. It's a, um, uh, you know, you're not good but enough. But you can do if the person's purpose isn't completely animated by where they, they are, right? If you're there more for the pay and the status and, yeah. right, you, then it's not such a critical thing but to confront somebody who's like, but this is my whole reason for being. Well, that's right. And I, <laughs> and I think, and so um, the, uh, you know, confronting in those situations is, um you know it, the important the important piece is uh, you, you, this might be your reason for being, it, but the, the the it's actually not about you. Mm. It, you know, and I've I've spent to many many staff and, and had a, you know a, 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 across the organisation in the last couple of years, hundreds of staff face to face. And and said, you know, let's just be clear. This is we're delivering a purpose in the organisation, mm-hmm. um, and we're here to meet human need. And we are some of the people who are having our needs met by the organisation because we're either extrinsically or intrinsically getting our needs met, and that's okay. I get my my needs are met by Mission Australia. I get to work here, and I get paid mm-hmm. for it, and I feel good. It's fantastic, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's the same for many of you as well. Mm-hmm. But not at the expense 
of the people that we're serving because it's not actually about us. Mm. And the trap that people fall into, and I think in those difficult conversations, sometimes an organization, oh, they're such a good-hearted person. Mm. You know, they've been in the organization for such a long time. They're so well-motivated. Like, yeah, but they're, they're not behaving well. And actually, it's impeding our ability to deliver our purpose mm. in, a, in a way which is, um, you know, consistent mm. with our values. Um, and so we have, a, there, there are different ways of doing it. What are we going to do in terms of developing that person's capability or, or helping them to understand um, where it's not aligning with the organization's purpose and what else we might be able to do with them? Because it may not be as simple as just saying, here's a number, please go. <laughs> um, mm. But even in that, uh, and one of the things I talk about in the organization, you know, we have a responsibility. So, um, with employees who are, and again, we do have them occasionally in the organization who've been in the organization for a long period of time and they may be underperforming and may not be suitable or the role has changed. Mm. In any given year, Mission Australia roles, you know, um, you know commissions and decommissions commissions contracts through, our, through the government contracting mm. cycle. And we're, you know, we make people redundant every year not the same amount not the same programs not in the same places but there is a cycle there's a nature there is a nature of that um we can't just hold on to everybody yeah that takes a real level of grit and yeah. courage i think you know to, to do but, but that, it's then also yeah. about creating you know a, a dignified exit mm. for people mm. and even people whether you know with um uh, you know in, in, when looking at performance um we have a responsibility to that person as an employee to make sure that they aren't either, in my view, you know, that, that they shouldn't be deluded about their capability. And if they're not good enough, they need to know that they're not good enough. Um, because otherwise they're going to be, you know, they go out into the, work, into the workplace believing that they are mm. good enough to do this job and actually the organisation conspired against them and actually measurably they, mm. it was a challenge in their performance. So I think the integrity of, and that's the value of the organisation, the honesty in those conversations and actually mm. yeah. honestly saying to people, um, I'm going to have to, you know, you, mm. have to let you go because, you know, you're not good enough to do this role. Mm. It's much, much easier to sit down with people and say, oh, you're such a nice person and don't worry, it's not about you. <laughs> Right. It's much easier to do that. But then that's actually about me. That's actually about making me feel okay. Yeah. Something to do about making, you know, giving, uh, setting you up in the best possible way to understand, mm. um, you know, what you might need to go to work on in order to, um, to mm. achieve, you know, success somewhere else. Mm. Um, and I think that it's very, very important to make sure that that, that authenticity mm. is there. Mm. Um, and, and it, you know, comes to, those, mm. to the principle, is, it's not about us. We're not here for our own benefit. We're here for the benefit of the people that we serve. And we have a responsibility to those people to be delivering the best we can, not the least we can get away with, because it's convenient to us. Yeah. So, and that drives a lot of decisions, particularly mm. around um, you know what mm. capabilities you have and who you have in an organisation. Yeah, wonderful. I think that feels mm. like a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's Thanks. really uh, uh, wonderful to explore all the nuances and to hear your perspective, which is you know got some freshness for us I think too you know mm. great thanks for us it's been a pleasure thank you thank you thank you our conversations may run dry as night passes by but I don't mind sitting in the silence with